VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Hi, it's Akshat. This week, the International Energy Agency published its flagship report, The World Energy Outlook. It's hundreds of pages long and makes some bold claims. It says that in the year 2030, there will be 10 times as many electric cars on the road as today. 80% of all new power generation will be solar or wind. And demand for fossil fuels, that is coal, oil and gas, will have peaked. The report is dominating climate news because what the IEA says makes a big difference to how governments tweak their energy policies. But how did an organization formed by a handful of countries in response to the 1973 oil crisis come to hold so much influence over our response to the climate crisis? For the answer, this week we are revisiting one of our favorite episodes, an interview with Fatih Birol, the head of the IEA. As we approach COP28, hosted by an oil power and led by the CEO of an oil company, it's good to understand how international organizations can be successfully transformed in the face of climate change. This story of the IEA's transformation is just one of many I explore in detail in my book, Climate Capitalism. I spoke with Fatih in Paris in March about the IEA's changing priorities and how it has cemented its role in the energy transition. I hope you enjoy the conversation and we'll be back with a regular episode next week. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshatarati. This week, dirty data, directorial debuts, and depolarized debate. When you think about Paris, you think about the smell of butter wafting from patisseries, accordions playing outside the Louvre, and if you time it right, the occasional mass protest against pension reform. When I think about Paris, I think about the brutalist concrete building next to the Eiffel Tower. It's home to the International Energy Agency, a small but very influential intergovernmental organization that shapes all our futures, even if we don't know it. Better known as the IEA, it was founded in 1974 in response to the oil crisis. And according to its executive director, Dr. Fatih Birol, it started out as a rich man's energy club, working to make sure OECD member countries had enough oil at all times. For decades, that was its mandate. The IEA's work was key to creating strategic petroleum reserves, essentially huge tanks of crude stored away to be used in emergencies. But under Fatih, the organization has changed. It now offers different kinds of memberships, which has allowed it to bring on board giant energy consumers like India and China, even though they are not part of the OECD. The IEA also looks out for the poor by working to ensure that they have access to energy. And after years of criticism for underestimating the growth potential of renewables, it has now become an authority on clean energy. In 2021, the IEA made headlines around the world by releasing a report that said, if we want to achieve net zero by 2050, there should be no new investment in fossil fuel infrastructure, period. 
it's a big call for an organization founded to secure oil and a much needed correction welcomed by the climate community. The IEA does not decide any country's energy policy. Its role is to analyze the state of the world and advise governments to act on crises. Look at what happened last year. Russia invaded Ukraine and within days the IEA published a 10-point plan for Europe on how it can wean itself off Russian gas. The IEA had no power to implement the plan, but its recommendations became Europe-wide policy anyway, spurring huge investments in clean energy across the continent. And I believe when we look back 10 years from now, we will see that it was a major milestone in the history of energy, mainly driven by energy security and climate change concerns. Fatih is able to say these things because of the IEA's number-crunching prowess. They receive energy data from its members and work intimately with governments, academics and companies to make predictions about current and future energy needs. I sat down with Fatih in Paris to ask when global emissions will peak, if it's possible to get there sooner, and how the International Energy Agency rebuilt itself to become fit for the climate year. Dr. Birol, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, we're here in Paris and we just had lunch and you were telling me about your career before getting into the energy industry and you started in films. Yes, after I studied electrical engineering in Istanbul, I thought at that time the engineering was dry occupation and I wanted to be more involved in the social issues and I made movies. First, I started with the eight millimeters uh, movies. I got prizes for that. And then I moved to 35 millimeters, the normal movies. I was a assistant director for uh, a few movies. And then I moved from Istanbul to Vienna. And my main objective was to study film, film academy. But as it happens, I found myself in the Technical University of Vienna studying energy economics. I am now watching movies, but not directing them. <laughs> so the, the world of energy uh, just drew you in and you've never left since. No, because I found what I was looking for, because energy is very much related to life of human beings. There's a very strong social aspect there. And since many, many years, I am working on energy and I'm very happy with that. Now, the IEA does important work and we'll talk about a lot of that. But for the average person in the street, it's unlikely that they know about the organization. Yeah. What is it that the IEA does that makes their life better, even if they don't know it? So we try to, first of all, make the energy security. Everybody should have access to energy, both in developed and developing world. But our, our main attention is the developing world. Second, we want to make sure that energy is affordable for the people, that they can have enough money to buy their energy, their fuel. And the third, we want to make sure that the air they breathe is clean because some of the energy sources are the main drivers of air pollution or, in other words, the climate change. The IEA's roots, going back all the way into the 70s, lie in the world of energy security tied mostly to fossil fuels at the time. Even today, majority of the energy is tied to fossil fuels, but the world is changing. And in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea and there was panic over gas, you were pitching yourself to lead this organization. What was the pitch that you made? 
We were founded in 1974. In fact, next year is our 50th uh, birthday. I thought IEA is a wonderful organization, but there are two things missing. One of them is IEA was known an authoritative energy organization, but organization of the rich men, rich mass energy club. This is one I thought to be changed. And the second is I had a pivotal role when it comes to the conventional energy technologies. But I thought given the critical importance of climate change and the role of energy in causing climate change, there is a need IEA to accelerate its efforts on the clean energy and the fight against climate change. So when I applied to be the head of the IEA, I said there are two things I want to do if I was elected. And uh, one of them was to open the doors of the IEA to emerging world, mainly Asia, but not only Africa, Latin America and others. And the second is to make the IEA a hub for clean energy technologies. So I am very happy that the member governments of the IEA unanimously agreed and uh, selected me as the head of the IEA in 2015. Now, you're coming up to the end of your second term as the head of the IEA. In that period, the agency has gone from being criticized for being too slow to project the growth of renewables to being championed by climate activists for being the agency that says no new fossil fuel infrastructure should be built if we are to meet climate goals. So we are always criticized, actually. We were criticized being too slow and we are now criticized being too fast. So, <laughs> but I think the people need, the energy world need fast and decisive leaders. So what do you think gives IEA the credibility to have the kind of influence that it does on the world of energy? So we have expanded the number of experts working here substantially. For example, when I took over the IEA, we were about 200 10 people here, and currently we are about 350 people, more or less with the same core budget, to be honest with you. But the big portion of the growth came from the clean energy part, clean energy technologies, renewables, energy efficiency. These are the areas that we grew, and uh, we have gained a very strong momentum in these areas. I was talking with one of the uh, leaders of the energy industry the other day, and uh, he was complaining to me that they are not able to recruit young people, even though they give uh, very good uh, salaries, uh, much better than the IEA, because many young people, when they finish their university, they really looking for a purpose, not only for money. And at the IEA, we are overwhelmed with the interest from the young people, and I'm very happy that my colleagues here find the purpose and they know that the work they are doing has a real-world impact, but at least we are working towards that. Now, we've seen a full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and we've seen what impact that's had on Europe as it tried to move away from Russian fossil fuels at a very rapid pace. That's led to decreasing the amount of gas that's being burned and a ramping up of renewables. How do you think Europe can make the most of the current moment to pursue its long-term goals which are tied to a clean energy agenda? So we are completely right. 24th of February uh, last year, Russia invaded Ukraine. And one of the things I am proud of the IEA is we are very nimble. 24th of February was the invasion. 1st of March, one week later, we came out with a 10-point plan what Europe should do in order to reduce the reliance on Russia, but at the same time making sure that the measures we are taking 
are not against our climate goals. And some of the measures, when I discussed with the government leaders, they were found very radical. For example, we said in Europe, we have to bring the room temperature two degrees lower. We have to see a major increase of renewables as a result of cutting the permitting and licensing time of these renewable installations. Or we said uh, two countries, Belgium and uh, Germany, please consider not to shut down your nuclear power plants extended for some time. Those are all now implemented. What I see when I look at Europe today, one year uh, later, I think we have all the reasons to congratulate European decision makers. I give a couple of uh, numbers. As you know, actually, I am a man of numbers, so I make my hands dirty with data every day. So uh, first, Russia's oil and gas revenues declined by 40%. This is very important. The, The country that invaded and aggress another uh, country, their revenues went down. Second, the share of gas in Europe before the invasion was about 40% coming from Russia, and now the Russian gas in Europe is less than 5%. Renewables installation in Europe increased by 40%. Heat pumps increased by 40%. And on top of that, the cherry on the cake, in my view, while fighting against this aggression, European emissions declined by 2.5%. So you were able to, in Europe, keep the lights on. You were able to push the clean energy and at the same time reduce the emissions. I think this is a success story, but the game is not finished. This is the first half of the match. The second half will be what will happen the coming winter and the winters in front of us. There is still a narrative, uh, especially in the energy industry, that says much of the crisis that Europe faced was because of a lack of investment in fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. But you say that that is a mistaken idea. Yes, you are completely right, Arshad. I believe the lasting solutions to energy security uh, goes through increasing the share of clean energy. Uh, In fact, one of the reasons why we have seen such a big increase in uh, renewables in Europe It is not driven by climate concerns mainly. It is mainly driven by energy security concerns. Today, energy security is the most important driver of uh, renewables around the world. And I believe this will continue. When we look at fossil fuels, for example, there's a lot of discussion in many countries. Shall we build or develop a new oil field? This will help us for the uh, Russian energy crisis. I think there are at least three mistakes there. One... If you start the oil field today, the first oil will come to you on average six, seven years later. This is number one. Number two, the electric cars are growing very, very strongly, very strongly. So I am not sure that in six, seven years of time, the world will need additional oil production growth. So this is the second mistake. The third one is the, of course, climate change. So I discuss this issue all the time. I tell the companies who push this idea, as you rightly mentioned, the fossil fuel investments. I said, I have no problem if an oil company says, I am going to increase my production by 3 million barrels per day, 5 million barrels or this percent. This is their view. They can do whatever they want. But my problem is, if a company says, I am going to increase my production by 3 million barrels per day, 5 million barrels per day, and my uh, company's strategy is in line with the Paris course, this is not true. This cannot happen. Both of them cannot happen at the same time. 
I am sorry, but they have to choose one of them. IEA will try to push those countries to choose uh, one of them. I hope they choose the good one. Now, the world of energy and climate have been for some time polarized. There has been a real need to try and bridge the gap. The IEA has performed an important role to help make that happen. However, still you get these examples which don't seem logical. Just to give you one, Joe Biden, president of the U.S., is keen on making sure that the U.S. meets its climate goals. Worked on a big bill that was passed last year, the Inflation Reduction Act. At the same time, they have just approved a new $8 billion oil project in Alaska. That goes against the advice that the IEA has given that no new oil and gas infrastructure is needed. Why is it that you continue to see these seemingly illogical steps taken by people who understand the science, who understand the importance. Mm. So, um, actually, one of uh, the ambitions that I have as head of the IEA is to make the energy world and the climate world talk to each other and find common ground. It is the reason I believe there is a need to build a, I call it a grand coalition, governments, industry, investors, NGOs, who are sincerely, I underline this uh, sincerely, intent to address our climate challenge. I give you one example. A few months ago, I was in Davos. In the morning, I had a meeting with uh, Greta Thunberg, and in the afternoon, I had a meeting with the CEO of a mining company. And in the evening, I had a meeting with the prime minister of an European country. So we need to bring them uh, together. We cannot be too selective here. And only and only if we can build this grand coalition, we can reach our climate goals. So this is our uh, job. And uh, when it comes to Inflation Reduction Act, in my view, it is the single most important climate action since Paris 2015 agreement. And I hope it will be implemented in the uh, right way. So in that context, how do you make sense of the Biden administration approving an $8 billion project that extracts oil for 30 years in Alaska? So it is up to the U.S. government to decide how they are going to secure their energy supplies but I would tell you that if I have to look at the U.S. energy and climate policy, if I have to single out uh, one thing, it is the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, in my view, the single most important action uh, since Paris Agreement in 2015 as far as the climate change is concerned. If countries take decisions which we believe are not consistent with each other, we try to pinpoint them. After the break, three numbers you should remember and what we can do to make emissions peak sooner. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? 
BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. In one of our previous conversations, you had said that the IEA's strength comes from taking the right position and then having the backbone supported by the numbers to hold that position. Mm-hmm. If we had to talk about three numbers that matter for the moment we are in, what would they be? Three is, in fact, too little. But the first number I would say is 800 million. Today, about 800 million people have no access to electricity. This is my biggest preoccupation, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Every second person have no access to electricity. This is uh, number one. Number two, uh, 1.4. 1.4 is today uh, the clean energy investments in the entire world is $1.4 trillion vis-a-vis one trillion uh, fossil fuels. And in order to have an orderly planet, this 1.4 needs to go to 4 trillion 2030, and most of them needs to come from the developing countries. This is the challenge. And the third one is the 50%. What is this 50%? Even most conservative estimates in 2030, every second car, 50% of all the cars sold in China Europe and United States will be an electric car. So this will change the game uh, significantly. So there are three numbers, 800 million, 1.4 trillion, and 50%. Now, if we stick to the trillion dollar figure there, as you say, countries will need $4 trillion of annual investments in clean energy to be able to meet energy access and climate goals. What is the way in which that amount of money could come through developing countries and finance what is an absolutely necessary transition. You ask me to choose three uh, numbers. If you ask me to choose one term, which is for me very important, I would say the fault line. Today, the fault line of our fight against climate change is how do we finance the clean energy investment in developing countries. First of all, the Climate change problem we have today is not only the result of the emissions of today, but it's the concentration of the carbon atmosphere since 100 years. And 80% of these emissions came from the advanced economies today. They were responsible to clean up. So this is number one. Number two, I think there is a huge potential of clean energy in the developing countries, much more than the advanced economies, but the money, the capital, and these projects don't meet each other because of the risks involved. So therefore, there is a role for the international financial institutions. And they, in my view, they failed. And I hope that uh, they will resume uh, the role of organizations which look after the sustainability of the global economy and put the clean energy transition top of their agenda. And I see these two things, the responsibility of the advanced rich countries, and the growing role of the MDBs is key in order to address this fault line issue, namely exciting clean energy investment in developing countries. One other way in which we can accelerate the 
clean energy transition in developing countries is through transferring lessons learned by one country to another. One of the chapters in my book is about how India developed its solar industry and how you have worked with the Indian government to figure out the lessons from the growth of solar and help other countries to deploy some of those examples. Can you give me more examples of where, what the IEA does beyond publishing reports about where the world is going on a more granular level to transfer lessons from one country to another? In energy policy, if there are policies, measures, standards and norms works in one country, it would, with some calibration, it will work in another country. We say in Turkish, you don't need to hit your head on the wall to understand it is hard. <laughs> so this, there's experience in front of you. So we are sharing experience of country A with country B and giving them uh, advice. One example, efficiency. So what we are doing, and this is just one example, around the world, telling the colleagues, how are you going to draft the efficiency standards for refrigerators? This is very important. I mean, this is the key issue. We work with Indian government on the, how you put the efficiency standards for the air conditions, a top reason for the electricity demand uh, growth. So we are providing these experiences, sharing the experiences, not only from the advanced economies to developing countries, but within the developing countries. For example, India has a, an excellent example of uh, LED lighting. We have provided this experience to Indonesia, and Indonesia is uh, using some of the elements uh, of the LED lighting success story at home. So this is our job to share the experience, the good ones and also bad ones to learn from each other. You have called what happened last year the first global energy crisis. Mm-hmm which would feel a little bit odd given we've had energy crisis in the past. Why is this the first global energy crisis and what will trigger the next one? You are completely right. We had crisis in the past uh, 70s and 80s, but they were only focused on oil. And now we have oil, natural gas, even in the coal markets. The reason is very simple. Russia was the number one energy exporter of the world. Number one oil exporter, number one natural gas exporter, big pillar in the coal markets, uranium, electricity, and everything. And uh, we have seen the effects of this not only in Europe, but across the world as a result of price effects. Now, what could be another crisis? There are many candidates for that, unfortunately. But what I see a risk today is we just discussed uh, the clean energy is growing. They don't need fossil fuels, but they need other things, such as uh, critical minerals, such as the manufacturing of the clean energy technologies. And when I look at the picture today, there is also concentration here, uh, like we had for oil, like we had in natural gas. For example, more than 80% of the PV is in uh, China. And forget the 80%, when you look at all the modules of the PV manufacturing, from 80 to 90%, it is in China, and it is maybe even one single province and two major industrial facilities. If there's a fire there, the entire supply chain uh, will be disrupted. So it is uh, not against uh, China or anything, but reliance on one single country, one single company, one single trade route is always risky. In my view, the magic word here is a diversification. We have to diversify this and to have a clean and secure energy future relies in many countries around the world, follows the footsteps of uh, China. 
and make sure that they have enough access to critical minerals and the manufacturing of the clean energy technologies. Another outcome of the energy crisis has been record profits for fossil fuel companies. Saudi Aramco posted a record profit of $160 billion. Just to put that in context, Apple had a profit of about $25 billion. At the same time, the world needs to invest a lot more money in clean energy. How do you find a way to move vast profits in fossil fuels toward encouraging those companies which have to be a part of the transition to invest in clean energy? Akshat, we look every year how much profits the oil and gas companies make. On average, uh, until last year, they were making about $1.4-$1.5 trillion. And last year, their profits increased to $4 trillion, more than double. So I very much hope these companies would use this a huge amount of, uh, I call that windfall profit, in order to accelerate their clean energy efforts. It can be hydrogen, it can be carbon capture uh, storage, it can be offshore wind, many options. But uh, what I see what is happening is uh, not necessarily in line with my hopes and expectations. Some of them goes back to the shareholders, others uh, go to the fossil fuel investments. I very much hope uh, that they would do what they say, because all of these companies are saying that the clean energy is very important for that, and they have the abilities, engineering skills, the management of running huge projects, and a lot of experience in order to accelerate the clean energy technology deployment. But if you ask me whether or not I see acceleration there, my answer would be not necessarily. You're a rare person running an intergovernmental organization. You have a PhD in economics. You have not run an election, public election. You are a technocrat. Most intergovernmental organizations are run by politicians. What are the advantages of being a technocrat running an intergovernmental organization? So I never run for office. I did once. It was uh, when I was uh, nine years old to be the representative <laughs> of the, the, the class of the students. Uh, there and I lost it to somebody else. And then you said never again. So no, I, I was second. So I was the vice uh, the representative of the class. Politics is at the heart of the energy, but I didn't want to be part of a political party. And you are right, before me, uh, there were distinguished IEA executive directors. My predecessor, for example, was the uh, former Minister of Economy of uh, Netherlands. I came within the ranks. The advantage is you have a command of the issues, uh, the energy issues, you know the numbers, and I always say data always wins. When you were elected to be the head of the IEA, the first speeches you gave were in Beijing and New Delhi. Beijing, if we look at it, yes, its emissions are still rising and they do have to peak sooner, but they have taken green technologies and run with it. All the major technologies that we know, solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, electric cars, now hydrogen, all China is leading the world on. The same can't be said about India. When do you think India will be able to grab onto its potential for clean energy, both for development, but also for climate targets. I think you uh, made your homework very well. I should congratulate you for that. In order to underscore the vision I put forward, namely 
opening the doors of the IEA to emerging world. The first week after I became the head of the IEA, I gave my first speech in Beijing, followed by New Delhi. The reason is that to show the world and these two important players in the global energy scene, that we want to work with them, we want to make sure that the energy is secure, but at the same time clean. China is the undisputable leader of uh, clean energy around the world today, but I am much more optimistic about India than many others. People are too much focused on the coal story in India. This is a real story, definitely, but look at what is happening with the solar. It is a huge, huge success story. I and mean, if I had time and if I was a journalist or a researcher, I would make a book or an essay on the India solar revolution and there. It will be a inspiration for many countries, including those in Africa very soon. With India, I am expecting, and this also based on my meeting with Prime Minister Modi, India will make a lot of inroads in the clean energy technology manufacturing as well, because India doesn't want to uh, build the solar panels, uh, which they import from other countries and want to be independent uh, there, which is excellent. And it helps to the point I try to make diversification of the sources. I am very hopeful about India because India, when you look at the Indian energy history in the last few years, there are many impressive achievements, which are not very much heard around the world. Providing access to electricity, almost 500 million people in a very short period of time, population of Europe. There is a program that is not very much known in the most of the world called Ujwala program. It is a, in India and many countries, women and children die prematurely because of the respiratory diseases, because of the cooking practices using wood, agricultural waste, animal waste. And in Asia, it is one of the top three reasons for premature death. So Ujwala program gave clean energy solutions to the women and children. This is the second one. I expect that India will be a major driver of clean energy, similar with China. Europe did cut its emissions by 2.5% in 2022. But the world still hit a new peak of emissions, according to your own data. When do you see global emissions peaking and how can we get there faster? So uh, you are right. Uh, our data shows that the uh, last year global emissions did increase. But if we remember the discussions beginning of the energy crisis, there was a, a major concern that we will see runaway emissions, big growth. Why the growth was so uh, subdued, if I may say so, it is uh, because of the unprecedented growth of clean energy. If this growth didn't happen, the emission increase will be three times higher. And I believe when we look back 10 years from now to 2022, we will see that it was a major milestone in the history of energy where we see a turbocharging of clean energy transitions, mainly driven by energy security and climate change concerns. When do we peak? If we are uh, committed to 1.5 degree target, which IEA is, we have to see the emissions peak around 2025. And when I look at all the countries around the world, the most important uncertainty here is China. China is the single largest emitter of the world. 
China is saying the official statement they want the emissions to peak before 2030. But when I look at the Chinese numbers, my expectation is Chinese peak will be before 2030 and it will help the global emissions peak. But this wouldn't be enough, in my view, to be in line with the 1.5 degree target, but will bring us closer to that. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've talked to Fatih several times over the past few years. And when I asked him what he wants his legacy to be, he said he wanted the IEA to address the two biggest challenges of this century climate change and access to energy for all. Both are issues that will take decades to solve. But the changes that the IEA has made shows how international organizations can reorient themselves for the climate era. The research for this episode is based on work I did for my book, Climate Capitalism, that will be published later this year. I hope you'll give it a read when it's out. Thanks for listening to Zero. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Send it to a friend or share it with your favorite patissier. If you've got a suggestion for guests or topics or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Kira Bindram, Eric Roston and Will Mathis. I'm Akshatrati, back next week. When you publish it, how long would it be? Normally between 30 and 40 minutes. Really? So people have patience to listen to such well, long things? Well, amazing amounts of patience. Uh, really? I, I wouldn't listen myself. So it's <laughs> 40 minutes, really. It is amazing. So this is uh, 30, 40 minutes. Yeah.